When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the podcast, we revisit these ideas in new ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I'm very happy to be here today with the writer Joyce Carol Oates. She grew up on a farm, tending chickens in what she describes as a very desolate part of upstate New York, and grew up to write around 90 and counting novels and collections of essays and short stories, uh, many of them while teaching at Princeton University. She's won many, many awards, including the National Book Award, the Penn Malamud Award, and the National Humanities Medal. Her latest novel, A Book of American Martyrs, begins with a terrible act of violence and then deals with its complex aftermath. Welcome to Think Again, Joyce. Thank you. So, I mean, in trying to describe the plot, like in an elevator pitch, sort of, you know, to introduce the show, I the best I was able to come up with was something like murder of an abortion doctor by a religious zealot as the inciting incident, which is full of, like, it's almost impossible to avoid sort of partisan cliches, which is very far from the spirit of what you're trying to do in this book, it seems. Yeah, so as a novelist, I almost always try to present different points of view and immerse myself in different perspectives. I think ultimately one can sense a sort of moral gravitational pull toward one side or the other in in works of fiction, but I think it's really um, almost really necessary to give voice to people who are different from ourselves with whom we don't agree politically. Have you spent time in, you know, I'm, I'll confess that I don't, your oeuvre is very daunting and I do not know anything near like near the totality of it, but you know, have you spent time in the minds of religious zealots like Luther Dunphy before? Well, I did write a novel called Son of the Morning, which is about a Protestant minister, a young man who feels he has a calling to be a Protestant minister. The wor- words like zealot are kind of pejorative. You know, the people sure. who feel the, they feel a, a great suffusion of certitude and sometimes joy. It could be just a sense of mission. It's hard to say. You know, many people feel the same feelings who are in, extremely liberal and want to be altruistic and and do good for people, except they don't have a God necessarily. They may be secular people. Right. But we don't use the word zealot. We don't usually use that word zealot. I guess there could be Marxist zealots if you felt you wanted to be critical. They're idealists who are very different from ourselves. That makes sense. I mean, the abortion doctor, I don't know what else to call him, the gynecologist, OBGYN. Well, he's a, an abortion uh, provider. Right. He's, he's a the doctor. Yeah. Provider Gus Voorhees is also, I mean, could also be called a kind of zealot from the other side. He is extremely committed to a cause and an activist on behalf of women's rights. Yes, definitely. He's, he's not modeled exactly on George Tiller, but there have been abortion providers who were assassinated, like George Tiller of, of Kansas in, I think, the ni- 1990s. And my character right. is not really modeled after George Tiller, but maybe a composite figure with some you know, imagined personality of his own. Right. Why do you think you wrote this book now? I mean, I can make some kind of blunt guesses in terms of what's going on in the country at this time, but... Where do you think this book came from? Well, actually, I wrote the novel a little while ago, before, long before Trump was on the scene. That's the odd thing. I was writing a novel about a girl who was trying to deal with the loss of her father, and he right. had been 
in one version of what I was writing, he was going to be a lawyer associated with Planned Parenthood. And then as I kept work, working on it, I made him, of course, an abortion provider. Basically, he was a doctor, and then as so many women and girls came to him needing help, needing abortions, many of them quite desperate, uh, many doctors become abortion providers out of that necessity. They may not even you know, have wanted to do it at all in the beginning, but it's something that happens to them that nobody else is there, and the women or girls might try to you know, do their own abortions, which would be disastrous, or go to abortionists who are not medic medically trained. My novel sort of grew out of persons or personalities, and it was set in Michigan. My, not, my writing is usually set in one particular place very vividly, so it was like a Michigan, right. no a Michigan novel. <laughs> well, you know, going back to, to where we started with the idea of zealotry, you know, my use of that term, you know, looking at the characters in this book and, and the subject that you're dealing with, and also looking at some of the things that are going on in this country, I understand and I see the need to try to understand and communicate across what seem like cavernous gulfs in this yes. country. Yes, ever, uh, ever of ideology. more. Yeah, ever yeah. more so. And more now, I think, than when I was writing the novel. And yet it seems almost dauntingly impossible in, in sometimes outside of the context of something like this novel. I follow you like many people do on Twitter. You were tweeting earlier today and you have some very pointed and you know accurate things to say against Donald Trump. This is a different spirit, a different kind of approach, you know. Oh, that's true. That's di true. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think that's true of most writers. I mean, Gabriel Marquez was a communist, but when in his wonderful fiction, which is just so lush, you know, sort of multifoliate, there isn't anything that's so reducible to like a propaganda idea, you know, and, right. and Shakespeare. I think there are different sides of our personalities. And the voting that we actually do is we either vote for or against, you know, it's very blunt. But in actual life, right. uh, our feelings in actual life are, are very complex. I came from a relatively poor and uneducated background. So I know that these people, and the quotation marks around these people, that the Trump people, I know they're not educated. They don't read the New York Times. They don't even watch probably CNN. They just watch Fox News. They may go to church and they're told things by their ministers. And they're not critical thinkers. They may have high school degrees from poor schools. They're probably just functionally literate. We can't really, in a democracy, well, we can't have a democracy with so much of the populace barely educated. They believed everything Trump said. They believed him when they, he said Obamacare was a disaster. Obama is the worst president in history. They had no way of no, getting outside that bubble or box to realize this, this is a con man, he's lying. It's a tragedy, really. But my novel is not really about that. It's about how, how idealistic and naive some people can be. They give up their lives. Luther gave up his life because somebody, some minister had, a, you know, like a, a sermon about something, and he sort of gave up his life. They're just pawns, really, in a political squabble. One thing that, one thing that I found interesting is that in almost all of the relationships, people seem cut off from one another. People seem often cut off from themselves. For example, Naomi, who is the daughter of the abortion provider, Gus, uh, she falls downstairs, slips on ice, numb and daydreaming. I mean, this is because she's just learned that yes. her father's killer has been executed. But, you know, that happens. Luther, who is the killer, can't remember, like, bef first of all, before the, the killing, he had a car accident. His baby, his young child, Daphne, yes. died. He doesn't remember her being in the car. Yes, um, yes. He can't remember killing the other guy that he killed, which is the driver of the abortion provider. Yes. There's this yes. strange disconnect, I notice, both within people and between them in the book. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little about that. Well, it is an interesting phenomenon in, in the human brain. Uh, sometimes we remember seeing something that we've only been told about. 
and we sort of double down if we're if we're interrogated. We say, oh yes, I did see it. You know, he was wearing this and, and that. Something about the brain. So, in times of great stress and trauma, Luther is just selecting out what what he can allow himself to remember because he just can't sure. can't really deal with that. And it may be true. I think it's probably true with with all of us to some extent. But I, I didn't really mean him to be in any way like a criminal. And at one point, I think the teacher is talking to Dawn and says, well, there are other incarcerated men, you know, uh, fathers. And, this. <laughs> and she said, oh, no, no, my father's not a criminal. <laughs> you know, it's just, we suddenly, we see, well, he is a criminal, you know, like, but we've been so much with Luther, I think at that point, we, we think of him as a victim. He's, he's sort of blind, this blind faith. To think of him as just a criminal is, I think, sort of startling, you know. And it's like with the girl boxer, right. like with the women boxers, you know, you're so immersed in the boxing that suddenly the camera draws back and, and you sort of see Dawn as somebody else might see her. And you realize what a pathetic, doomed sort of person she is, even though she thinks she's on her way up. We sort of see her from this other perspective. That's right. I mean, you don't you don't see him as a killer. I mean, from his perspective, the abortion clinics are are like concentration camps. I found that to be a really an interesting analogy. It's very uh, the thing about abortion is that it is very easy for me to empathize with the essential importance of protecting women's yes. rights. Oh, yes. In that context, and at the same time, Abortion is morally complex, like no matter where you're coming from, I think. I mean, that is like it's impossible to argue if somebody believes that, you know, that is a life. Yes. It's impossible to to stand there and say that it's not murder, that you're not killing them, you know, that you're not murdering. Exactly, exactly. And also those of us who are secularists, we side with the mother and the, and the girl and that's their bodies. You know, I don't feel I have a right to force my ideas on somebody else. If a person who believes that the fetus is, you know, has a soul and all that, I wouldn't want that person to have an abortion. I mean, basically, I, th I think the problem in our country is that we are supposed to be separate church and state. If that were the right. case, there wouldn't be this problem because nobody's forcing evangelicals to have abortions, but they're trying to force secular people to abide by their their rules and their, their laws. That's the problem. But I mean, even if you take religion out of the picture, right, and somebody, say there were an entire group of people without a religious framework for it, believing that abortion is murder, you know, that it's still hard to argue against. I mean, I it doesn't mean that I agree with you completely. Yeah. That's why yeah, I was yeah. drawn to the situation, how really well-intentioned people get drawn into these things. And, but politically, you just have to make a stand, you know. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, so, and you, you kind of move fluidly between those two worlds in some of your writing and certainly in engaging on Twitter. I guess morally responsible people do need to engage politically. I don't know. It seems like the literary imagination might feel more comfortable retreating from all that and sort of swimming in the ambiguity. Well, I don't know. Many people I know don't really write about things that are politically controversial. You know, there's, uh, people take one side. I mean, I won't say who these people are necessarily, but right. you pick up a novel by very well-known feminists, let's say. You're not really going to be any too surprised by what you find there. But I'd like to right. read. I'd like to read literature by, let's say, somebody like Dostoevsky. There's so much there, you know. It's startling, and sometimes in one passage there'll be something unexpected, like the writer was just discovering something himself. It's not pre-programmed. It's not propaganda. And I think of poetry as enormously ambiguous. And when the poet sets out to write a poem, often or usually he or she doesn't even know where it's going because the poem is about its own discovery. So you get down to you know, line 12, you've arrived at something that wasn't necessarily in your mind at line one. And I think that's the, the ideal reading experience as well as the writing experience.
Yeah, and I think it's the ideal thinking experience, and that's why it feels so tawdry and difficult sometimes to be drawn into political discourse where things are so often... I'm not saying, like, you can't write ambiguously about politics, but in the sphere of public politics, everything is very blunt and black and white. As you said, you have to take a stand. I find a certain dissonance in switching between those two worlds of ambiguity of real life and the the bluntness of the political realm in which I feel increasingly forced to engage. Well, yeah, I make it pretty clear in the novel, not in the sections about Luther, but maybe Naomi, that we, we suddenly see, well, Luther is one of you know, hundreds of thousands of people who are really enthralled right. to a right-wing agenda. And that agenda is to elect Republicans so that they, right. can, they can vote into law tax cuts. It's like he's a puppet, but when we've been with That's him, right. we've been with him and he doesn't know he's a puppet. And he feels that this is something in his heart and he's doing something good. But from another perspective, suddenly they say, well, we don't really want assassins anymore. We're going we're gonna to do all this by way of the law. We're going to elect you know, governors and senators and so forth. So in the 1990s, it just fell out of fashion to vandalize Planned Parenthood clinics and to try to kill people. That fell out of fashion, so he falls between the two. They say, well, we don't need him anymore. We're not going to try to get him clemency. Let him die. You know, he becomes a martyr because in dying, then they can use his picture when they have these rallies. The Fox News did things like that. They would have these pictures of people and kind of brandishing them and pictures of abortion providers and calling them murderers. They don't do that anymore because it's a different political situation. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about Jenna, which is um, Gus Voorhees, the abortion provider's widow. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's really, really interesting what happens to her. I mean, first of all, I observe most of the women in the book are in one way or another overwhelmed or held down by men. Yes. Um, and that's a whole thing in itself. But but Jenna, you know, after after Gus dies and she's sort of following the trial and playing the role of the widow um, and being sort of pursued by reporters and so on, there's this moment where she has this realization that basically says my whole ideology, my whole worldview and everything that, you know, my husband stood for, none of that means anything in a way. And what is meaningful is that he's dead and and gone. Yeah. And then she says to the children, I can't be a mother to you anymore. And she leaves. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what's going on for her. Yeah. Well, Jenna is being blamed by the, the two older children. They basically blame her for the father dying. They think it's her fault that he went away alone to Ohio and that she should have gone with him. Or They're just they're being unfair. They're children, and, and they're hurt and angry. And they're lashing out at their parent who was alive. And basically, right. you know, is telling her that's her fault. So the mother just feels, maybe half-consciously, that it's too raw. She has only one life. And, I mean, I've been a widow myself. And yeah. you are expected to behave in a certain way and even to think a certain way. You know, the things that you're expected to do, you can do for a while. But then there's one day when you can't get out of bed. You're exhausted, you're broken, and you just feel, as Jenna felt, she's got to crawl away with her life and just try to survive. So she's actually in a hospital, she's has malnutrition or, or something. So when she picks herself up and leaves the hospital, then she just goes to New England, you know, or starts her life anew. Because it's either that maybe or just um, be destroyed. She's escaping with her life. She just sort of barely made it. Yeah, everyone is sort of a survivor in one way or another to the extent they can be surviving in various ways, mostly unhealthy. I wouldn't say mostly unhealthy, but none of them ideal, I guess. Well, Luther's widow did pretty well. She sort of picked herself up. In the up. end, yeah. <laughs> she yeah, picked yeah, herself yeah. up yeah, and yeah. got... <laughs> and she's sort of like yeah. the most um, zealous of all the, the crazy people, you know? She's got a, a little circle of friends, and 
there she is, but she didn't die. She was on her way to die with drug abuse, but it didn't happen. Right. Yeah, there's a glorious moment in the book where she, you know, has a Windex battle with flies yeah, in the yeah. closet of the house that they're living in, which is, I guess, this sort of transitional moment for her where she yes a moment where she's taking herself back yes and i've had that i've had that experience with the windex and the flies in a house and (laughs) it's pretty disgusting and horrible but then when you're done with it you feel such relief yeah it's pretty amazing how you know powerful and immediately relatable the idea that conquering some flies and a dead (laughs) mouse in the closet you know could be a redemptive moment for your life. Absolutely. You know, I, I, could, I could feel that full force. Yes. Um, so a number of reviews that I've seen and quotes and have called your writing effortless. Um, they've described your writing as effortless, which I know what they mean in terms of how it reads, but I wonder from the inside as a writer what that feels like to you. Is writing effortless for you? No, um, no, no. Does that make any <laughs> sense at all? Yeah. yeah. No, not at all. I wouldn't say it was an effort exactly, but I do a lot of rewriting, and I find it really mm. exciting to come to my laptop computer in the morning and rewrite most of what I wrote the day before. So at that yes. point when I'm revising it, it has a kind of fluidity, and it's... Uh, it's sort of joyous to do the revision. The first drafts, I find them more like I'm really thinking hard and, and working and so forth. It's like t- taking a route that you've mapped out literally with a map, and you know where right. you're going. So when you get to the destination, it's not really a surprise. It's a surprise maybe how you get there exactly. But the writing is not effortless. When you revise, do you go linearly or do you sort of go from section to section? Do you have a standard way or does it vary from thing to thing? How is well, it, when I'm all done with a man- manuscript, pretty much done with it, then I go back to the beginning and, and read right through I it. I see. But um, okay. with the writing I'm doing now, as I said, I would do the revisions from yesterday and then write a little mm-hmm. new, new material and then tomorrow I would do more. So it's kind of overlapping. But when I'm all done with it, then I go back to the beginning. And that can be quite rapid. I mean, I can discover that I don't have to do much revision anymore. And I can move along. I read it as a reader to see if it's slow you know, or too thin or whatever. That's the best part, is to read, read. Because sometimes I've been very discouraged, and I went back to the beginning, and I thought it wasn't, it wasn't so bad. You know, that you can be surprised pleasantly. Well, why did I worry right, so right. You know, I worried so much about this, but actually it seems to work. And sometimes I'll send it to my agent or to a friend, and he might read it and say that it was a page-turner, whereas I remember this being so hard to write that it just seemed you know, like walking in concrete. But then he'll say, well, no, reading it was like a page-turner, which is what most That's writers want to hear, I think. <laughs> Even Proust had a f- hallucination, maybe, that people were reading eagerly and turning pages. <laughs> So it's so then it's a matter of trusting. How do I want to say it's its own independent thing that you can approach objectively as opposed to being totally bound up with it personally. Yes, yes. Well, I teach writing too, and I I talk to the students about about pacing. You know that Hemingway's pacing is very fast. You can read pages of Hemingway very quickly. A lot of dialogue. Faulkner, for instance, is very dense. And you're reading right. slowly and sort of savoring it. And it basically, as a writer, you sort of decide, do you want to write in this fluid way or do you want to have things more thoughtful? Like you can't really skim Nebukov because right. if you start right. skimming Nebukov, you're, you're losing everything. But you can rapidly read Hemingway because much of the dialogue is superficial and the meaning is beneath the dialogue. You know, like they're really talking about something else. It's like the dialogue in Harold Pinter. The dialogue's not important. It's what's beneath. But when you're reading James Joyce, you can't skim. Do you feel that that's true of you? Do you try to vary the pacing and the style from thing to thing? Or are you, do you feel that you, there's one place you like to live mostly? I mean, you've written an enormous variety of things. <laughs> well, sometimes I'm it not. depends upon how dramatic it is. If you want a dramatic scene, and you want right. people to talk, basically you're going to have to have them talk 
rapidly to one another. You can't interrupt it with lots of paragraphs of exposition. But if it's more of a, a slow pace and it's somebody like in a relationship thinking about one another, you can have paragraphs that you might see in John Updike that are beautifully written and kind of slow, but there are, still there's something happening. You know, it just it's not like Ray Carver where you don't get that. You don't get right. those things. It sort of depends upon what you want to do in a novel. Like if you're writing a poetic novel, it's basically right. for the ear or for the eye rather than just a drama. So I think this is a good place for us to shift to the second part of the show where we'll watch the surprise clips and talk about them. Okay. And uh, this is the writer Gish Jen on identity and choice in the West. Um, in the United States, especially in, in the West generally, um, we have a model of self where um, the self is kind of like an avocado, right? And we have a pit inside of us. Um, the pit is our self, our essence, our identity. Um, it, it is the thing to which we must, above all, be true. And of course, very importantly, we see that pit as unique. In Asia, they, people frequently have a flexi self. So it's a different kind of self. Um, it is a self that's oriented more to duty than to um, rights, for instance. And very importantly, it does not have, have a cultural mandate to be different and to be unique. People in the East are not all alike, you know? So if you, know, if you looked at my family, like, believe me, every single person is very, very different. And that is true, of course, throughout Asia. You know, the difference is not, you know, how different are we from each other? The difference is how much significance do we attach to that difference? In other words, do we think it's very important to, to differentiate ourselves from others? So if you ask, you know, are they individuals? Of course they're individuals. You know, are they different? Of course they are different. But of course, for them, it's like, oh, of course I'm different. Why would I make a big deal of that, right? And they think it is very peculiar that in the West that we feel that we must, you know, differentiate ourselves from others endlessly. So one of the ways that we do that, of course, is through choice. You know, choice in the West is very, very important. Everyone is always making choices. And honestly, a lot of those choices make us a little anxious. If you um, do a study where you are just sitting in an empty room and you're making a choice and you come from a more individualistic culture, you actually show signs of a little anxiety. You know, every little choice that you make, even in private, because it's, it's defining of you, you, who you are, is a little loaded. They feel like they just choose. You know? <laughs> in other words, when they make those choices, it doesn't have this overlay, and that's one of the reasons they feel that actually we are less less free than they are. And so, even when we're doing things like um, taking care of the elderly, for example, you know, we want to feel that we that it is an extension of our great love and the the nature of our being to be able to take care of the elderly. Well, you know, the other day I was uh, having dinner with somebody who said, you know, I just don't feel that, and it's just, it's just very, very hard. You know, so somebody from a more flexi self or interdependent culture would say, you know, it's just your duty. And so for them, it's like, you know, they have their elderly parent. They just go take care of the elderly parent because that's their duty. For them, this is really liberating. You know, you just go do it, and you don't expect there to, you know, it's the expression of yourself, you know. It's just what people do. Um, from their point of view, we have made things very, very hard for ourselves to demand that, you know, that everything should be an expression of our inner nature. Oh, I thought it was very interesting, extremely interesting, and I like Gish Chen's writing. I have an anthology that I edited, and I have a, a very wonderful story by her. Yeah, I think what she's saying is, is maybe um, a little simple. I don't think it's just East and West. I think in the 19th century and earlier centuries, in the West, we had a much more duty-oriented culture, where there would be a right. you know a daughter, a wife, a mother, a father, a, you know breadwinner, a grandfather. You know the families were pretty rigid, and the daughter did what the parents wanted her to do, especially the father. That would be uh, Western as well as Eastern. It's basically sure. that in the in the West we sort of liberated ourselves from some of the strictures of the past because of industrialization yeah. and women having their own careers and more education. In the East, it had always been, you know, for centuries, that people were stuck in these little villages and they weren't really educated and they had a certain religion that kept them in place. 
you know, but after a while, right, right, right. you know, with science discovering different things, we, we don't really feel we're so locked into that, that vision. That's interesting. I mean, yeah, because I mean, I think of individualism as kind of a core part of the American spirit. Maybe, maybe it was more reserved for men back in the day. Yes, like, yes. Well, I agree. So with, that, I, I definitely agree. But there had been a tradition of fathers and sons. You know, the son is descended from the father. If he's a landowner in this country too, or say in the American South, you were basically right. going to stay with that, you know, your plantation and inherit the slaves and so forth. So there's pretty much a fixed family hierarchy. Right. But in this country, young men could just leave and they could go out west. And that was a galvanizing and really exciting era, maybe in the, I don't know, early 19th century or late 18th century. They sort of all picked up and left New England. <laughs> The ones who could, you know, right. who, di who didn't own land and didn't have 12 children, they just picked up and they went out west. And so that was so exciting, and I think we still have that, that uh, aura, you know, of the Wild West and what Huck Finn called lighting out for the territory. Like, why should you right. spend your whole life being somebody's son? Why? Or somebody's grandson? You know, it was much right, more right. possible for men, whereas women would be more likely to be stuck back home. I mean, even going back, you know, before people were really striking out west, they had struck out west from England or, yes. you know, Holland yes. or wherever to come to America in the first place. Yes, and that was very exciting to get away from the old church and the old r village. You know, everybody, everybody knew your father and grandfather. Just kind of go to some right. new world. So I think Gishjen, you know, I mean, she's certainly correct about a general distinction, but I don't feel that there's much there um, in the whole idea of duty. That's just sort of a, your class, you know. The ruling class has never felt that way. The ruling classes have always done what they wanted to do, and they sort of impose mm. religious views and perspectives and morality on people beneath them. But they've always done what they wanted to do. I mean, they were really above the law. No, nobles right. and royals have always beheaded, you know, their sisters or brothers. I mean, they've always done right. things that are totally above the law, but there's no, there's no attorney general. They're not going to be prosecuted. It's their own morality. <laughs> but uh, sure. Eastern religions have always taught people to stay in their place. Taoism, for instance, you don't rebel, you're just passive, and you accept uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. You kind of accept the way things are. But in the West, we right. just don't feel that way. I mean, in the 19th century, people started realizing that uh, you had your own will and you could pick up and walk away. And the whole enlightenment is trying to shake off the old hierarchy of the church and sort of shake it off, you know. And so I'm much, right. more, I'm much more sympathetic with that. It may involve some, <laughs> it may involve some anxiety, but uh, think of the terrible anxiety when you're stuck uh, doing your duty and you know you don't want to do it, and the people you're doing it for are not worth it. Well, I guess I guess what my mind goes to, you know, you teach many young writers, um, and my mind goes to, you know, like a young writer trying to find their voice, and that kind of early anxiety of like, am I a writer? Am I a good enough writer? How should I differentiate myself? And then, you know, I would imagine that you arrive at a point where those questions stop being, you know, it stops being about you so much. And I wonder whether our American culture, particularly the way we sort of lionize young literary wunderkinds, whether that contributes to a sort of unnecessary anxiety in that process of mm -hmm. learning your craft. Well, it's always been like that. Lord Byron woke up and he was just in his 20s. He was the most famous poet of his era. He kind of woke up suddenly and <laughs> and he was famous, a child. Oh, Child Harold is that? Child no, Harold's Pilgrimage. Yeah. I mean, it's nothing yeah. that any, nobody reads it anymore. But he woke up that way, and, and Norman Mailer, at the age of, I think, 26, with The Naked and the Dead, he woke up and he was enormously controversial and a big bestseller. And Scott Fitzgerald's first novel sold out in three days. He was just a <laughs> dropout from Princeton. He was only about 23 years old. So those meteoric ascendancies almost always bring with them a backlash. And so today, right. we probably don't have quite the same sort of thing because we have so many 
people in in music and film and and sports. We have a lot of people who become celebrities overnight. So we don't have like just one or two. There might be five young writers a year who have a lot of sure. success, whereas there used to be maybe just one. But I had a former student, Jonathan Four, Jonathan Saffron right. Four. He had enormous success with his first novel, which is a wonderful novel, but I think then people were lying in wait and sort of attacked him. No matter what he would write, the next book, they were going to attack him because they were sort of jealous of him or, or envious. And I once in a while I come across something said about Jonathan Four. It's so bilious and mean, and I'm thinking, this is my student. You know, there was a time when <laughs> I was encouraging him to be a writer and, and saying these things to him, and now he's being attacked as if he's this old, battered veteran, and they have to attack him. That's just sort of part of the social media culture, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the same about David Foster Wallace, who's yes. writing I Really Love, but who definitely experimented with some kind of formal pyrotechnics, like in his early stories. And then, like, he became very famous very quickly, but also got a lot of backlash from people saying he had all these sort of literary tics or whatever. He was yes. a show off. He was this. He was that. If you're to survive, I guess you have to get over that hump and get to a point where you can just write and keep writing. Oh, yes, definitely. I met someone the other evening. I won't say her name, but I didn't even realize that she had taken so much abuse. She had some early success. Uh, she's now uh, middle-aged. But she had some really early success, and I just sort of assumed that she had always had success. She said no, no about her third or fourth book. Everybody attacked her, and she was ridiculed, and people said awful things about her, and she didn't write for a while. And I wasn't even aware of that. You know, We have images of wow. people that are kind of fixed in place, but we have no sense of what the real person's like. That's right. In some ways, maybe the ideal pathway is George Saunders, who like was kind of beloved, but not in such a giant, you know, visible yes. way. Like the yes. first book that really hit was 10th of December, and he was, you know, 40 something, 50, whatever by that time. Yes. You know, so he was kind of able to mature in his craft without all that. Yes, well, he would probably just laugh and say, that's just the way it happened. He would probably... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I sometimes yeah, not, meet people. It, it, it really happens quite often. I'll meet somebody like at a gathering, come up to me and say, Joyce, you were the only person who wrote a nice review of my book. You know, like everybody else hated <laughs> it. And, but my memory wasn't of that. And they say, you were, the, you were the only person who even read the book or something like that. So there is a feeling from the point of view of writers that they are uh, underappreciated, or maybe liter literally they are underappreciated. But most of us don't know about that. I, I wonder, do you have time for one more video or should we cut off here? I mean, I, I'd love to do just one more if we could. Okay, one more video, because that was very interesting. I thought it was excellent. This is Nicole Mason on Poverty in America. We're not talking honestly about what it really takes to get from poverty to the middle class. So for example, we know that only 4% of people who are born into poverty will ever make it to the um, upper middle class or to you know, have middle class success. And so what that means is that 96% of people are not making it out. And I think we're being dishonest when we say everybody has a fair and equal chance of achieving the American dream. So it wasn't until college that I figured out that I was poor. I hadn't, um, before then, I had no context for what it meant to have less than um, other people who lived around me or across town, and I certainly didn't know that I um, was outside of what was considered the middle class. And the first time that I heard about people living in poverty was in a political science class, and there we were talking about um, welfare policies, and one of the big policies at the time was welfare reform. And the debate was raging about what should be done. And um, a lot of the conversation was up here and really detached from the women and families that were going to be directly impacted by the policy. So we heard a lot of things um, about welfare queens, um, people 
living off the system, not wanting to work, um, women being lazy, having multiple children. And that really wasn't the reality for the women who were actually impoverished. And so when we look at the kind of policies that result the TANF policy, the welfare reform policy that we got on the other end, we got a policy that said, well, you can't, if you don't work, you can't receive benefits. Um, and you have time limits. And if you have another child, you're penalized. Those policies and those, that restrictiveness was counter to the everyday lived experiences of the women who were actually receiving the benefits. So what was excluded from that policy was a clear pathway out of poverty like education. They're missing, in the very beginning, there was um, very few um, provisions for childcare and a lot of other things that we know family and women need to be able to um, chart a path out of poverty. When people think of poverty, they think about money and resources and cash. Um, but a big part of poverty is the lack of social connections and social networks. And what we know is that those social networks and um, connections are really powerful in terms of helping people to navigate complex institutions and structures. And for, for, for poor people, those social networks are often missing. And when we talk about bridging from, the, from poverty to the middle class, social networks and social capital that are really important to making that, that leap. What we need to do is be working together across class, across race, and across all these markers of difference to figure out what are the connections? How might we support one another? And looking at the richness of what each of us bring to the table as opposed to assuming there's a deficit model, com a deficit coming from one end. You know, do you think, first of all, like in terms of public education, do you think there is any positive solution for America, like anything that, it's such a hodgepodge, but we know that many people are growing up in this country without, I mean, education means so many things, but we know that education is so inconsistent in the U.S. Oh, yes, it's so true. It's, it's a matter of regions and within one state, and even within a city, it's just, it's really local. So it's- But then like the efforts to like standardize it at the federal level, mm you know, create all kinds of issues. I have a yes. nine-year-old son and he's dealing with Common Core right now. And the entire third grade has been about test prep for him. They're teaching him to write essays, <laughs> like in this incredibly formulaic way with yeah. the like R2-D2 strategy and the something else strategy yeah, that, I've heard of that, you know, it's awful. yeah. And I mean, yeah, I mean... I don't know what to say. The question is so broad and it's so timely. I know, of course, of course. It, it does come down to how much money a district has. If you have bright, young, exciting teachers with BAs from Ivy League universities who can't wait to get in and teach, that's great. But if you have really tired, older teachers who are burnt out and who didn't even have good degrees, uh, you know, they're just worn out. They don't really have the energy anymore. So school teachers are always criticized, you know, they're supposed to love your job and do this and that and be so energetic. And I think, well, maybe they did that when they were in their 20s and, and you paid them so poorly and now why should they do it anymore? And when there's standardized right. testing, the, the teachers just test, they, they teach for the test, right. you know, for the exam. But that's exactly what anybody would do after a while. I mean, if you strike out on your own and try to be individual, then your students won't pass that, pass that exam. That's right. No, I mean, the pressure comes from, from the top, but the point is that, like, the reason for the test existing is what we were saying before, that, you know, there's so much variation at the regional level that there's this constant fight in American education, like, leave it up to the local district versus, yeah, you know, yes. let's get this thing under control or whatever. You can't. But whenever they try to get it <laughs> under control, you know, nationally, yeah, it's like, it's testing. Well, say, change the venue to medicine and hospitals. Okay. Suppose you had a rare kind of cancer. You go to Sloan Kettering. You're not going to go to some right. rural hospital in Georgia. You, you'll die. You'll die in a week. It's so obvious in terms of science and medicine that there's a hierarchy. There are maybe 15 places around the United States that you can go with your rare cancer of the liver or whatever, and you'll be treated and maybe your life will be saved. But if you go anywhere else or stay in your hometown, you're just going to die. 
The same thing is sort of true with education. There are, there are areas that are very well funded and there are energetic young teachers. Well, they don't, they don't have to be young, but, but then there are other areas where people are tired and they've been insulted and they don't make any money. And of course, they're not going to teach with much enthusiasm because they've been kind of insulted. I mean, I guess I wonder whether you think at this point, after all these years looking at America, that that there's anything sort of systemically that could or should, you know, fix the problem or whether because the way it looks, as you say, is like, well, here's the way it is, you know, like, if you're able to, you go to Sloan Kettering, otherwise you die. That's about it in this country. Other countries have solved it by distributing wealth more equitably and you don't have to have private schools. You could just have really good schools. You could pay your teachers more if you didn't have a huge military, bloated, insanely bloated military budget. There are some countries right. that don't even have any military budgets. They just put it on education and, and health, welfare, and, and, and science. So they're much better off than we are. I think our infant mortality rate is really low in this, or high in this country because we're not living up to our potential. Our money goes to strange things, and now we're going to put billions of dollars in a ridiculous wall to keep right. out Mexicans who don't want to come over. They don't even want to come anymore. You know, the whole thing, yeah. in this country, there's such a delirium, uh, a kind of delirium of politics, and people are not thinking clearly at all. But do you think that this sort of isolationism selfishness and then sort of libertarian like everyone can take care of themselves or else die attitude is american fundamentally i mean do you or and prime and more american than a sort of humanistic humanitarian attitude well i don't really know probably in small town america and say the um, the quaker communities i think probably there was something like socialism i'm not sure that there is an identi identity to America. I think we've gone through phases hmm. like in the 1930s where under Roosevelt with the so-called New Deal, there's much more of a sense of people taking care of one another. And a lot of writers and journalists and artists were not employed, so the idea is to employ them. And, and they went around the country doing different things and giving people worthwhile right. jobs and paying them. There's actually nothing wrong with that. But today, some people would say, oh, that's socialism. You know, that's just a kind so of... So hardship was beneficial to us in that way. I mean, I guess in World War II, people came together as well in this country. Yes, you know, yes, like... that's, that's true. And right now we have wars that are being waged, but they're just fought by a very tiny fraction of the population. Right. So we're, we're sort of um, victims of our own success or at least distance from suffering or something? Well, I think isolationism is attractive to people who've sort of given, given up. They say, well, I can't begin to understand what's going on in Europe, or, or I don't understand science, so I'll just stay home, you know, in, in rural Tennessee, and keeping elect, electing people who, who look and talk like me. But the future is global. There's nothing really that we can do about it. It is, right. it is global. There's no way around it. Trump, I guess, just represents a kind of retro, retrogressive fluke. And of course, he didn't win the popular vote. It's a kind of bad, a perfect storm of accidents of things all happening. Yeah, yeah. Even our globalist sector, you know, as represented by, say, Silicon Valley, has a sort of Ayn Randian everyone for the, you know, yes, we're globally interconnected, but it's a big free for all and everyone should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get out there and compete freely and... <laughs> Pollute the environment. You know, but there's a point when the environment's all polluted and then you're, you may have billions of dollars, but, you know, your children are just not going to have life expectancies. I mean, it's just sort of a denial, I think, denial of the interrelatedness of everyone. Right, right. You don't think that that's sort of a general, that these these trends are sort of general in America right now, or, or, or that they're part of an American character so much as they are maybe historical or limited to like dominant sectors of society right now? Well, we just had eight years of Obama, and Michelle, yeah, Michelle, right. Michelle Obama was a, certain, a model for a certain kind of exemplary that's right. person. And when they were... In Washington, there was a sort of a different atmosphere, you know, of diversity and 
helping, yeah, helping one right. another. So, I mean, that was just a, couple, a few months ago. And as I said, Hillary <laughs> Clinton actually did win the popular vote. So, in a right. sense, it wouldn't be that far-fetched that we have had a woman, the first woman president could be there right now. You know, it could have happened. It wasn't that she lost in a horrific landslide, you know, that he won like five times more votes. That didn't happen. So if that had right. happened, we'd be very depressed. I mean, if he had a huge mandate, it would be terrifying. But he didn't really have a mandate at all. He's sort of grasping. I think he won 26% of the voters who voted, who were only 48% of the whole, you know. So it wasn't anything like a mandate. That's right. I mean, when you were saying that about Obama and Barack and Michelle, it dawned on me how quickly I've forgotten. Like, it seems as if the veil of Trump has descended so fully yeah, that I... That's true. Like, it's hard to remember that, that they were there so recently. And yet, even when they were there, it was not... I mean, any democracy is going to be contentious, but yes. even when they were there... And although Michelle was an exemplary model of humanity and Barack was an amazing figure to have as the president, it was still deeply disappointing because the Congress was so yes, yes. at a standstill the whole time, you know, and so rancorous. Yeah, well, there's a lot of racism, I think. But that's a whole other topic that maybe we, yeah. don't, we don't yeah, have yeah. time Would to talk us, about now. Maybe we don't have time to talk yeah, about now. Yeah. Okay. Joyce Carol Oates, I, I want to thank you for all the time that you have been able to give uh, on this show, and it's been it's been great having you on Think Again. And that's it for another episode of Think Again. We have a lot of intellectual variety coming your way in the coming weeks. Um, wonderful conversation with a lexicographer about language a neuroscientist talking about time, celebrated physicist talking about the major paradigm shifts in modern physics, and lots, lots more. Um, if you value this show, if it means something to you, let me know what it means to you and how you listen and where you listen and where you are. I've been hearing from people from all over the world, from Australia, from Japan, um, who are listening to and using the show in all kinds of ways, it's really powerful to know and it's really valuable in terms of understanding what the show is for and how it can be better over time. Uh, you can email me at jason at bigthink.com and if you haven't done so before and you have a chance to rate or review the show on iTunes or wherever you're listening, that's a major help in terms of other people discovering it. We'll hopefully see you back next week. I mean, I say that all the time. I never actually get to see you, but I'm imagining you all out there listening, and I hope you can join us. Bye.